Do you know what time it is? It's that time again with Cindy Gern, who has the latest news about employment trends, current opportunities, and innovative strategies for managing a career on WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. Hi, this is Lewis Montgomery from Corn Ferry. Welcome to my show, Government Contracting Today. I'm very pleased to have my guest, the, the CEO of Bluemont, Roger Irvin. Uh, for those of you who may not have tuned into the show before, the reason we talk about the government contracting industry is because it is such a large and significant industry, especially in the economy in the, uh, the, the greater D.C. area. D.C., Maryland, and Virginia all are in the top five in terms of federal government spend. That is the equivalent of several billion dollars, which is actually the equivalent of the economies of several countries in the world. So again, this is a huge and important industry within, uh, within our society. And that's why we like to spend time talking about uh, government contracting. I'd like to introduce my guest and uh, give him an opportunity to, uh, to tell us more about his, uh, his background. I mean, Roger, you've had a very diverse and successful career and have worked for several major organizations, including, I'll try not to miss any, the, uh, the State Department. Uh, you were a senior staff member of House and Senate committees. You were a regional director for the African Development Bank. You've worked in a major law firm, the state of Wisconsin, the University of Wisconsin, LMI, and now as the CEO of Bluemont. You've also done something that very few people have been able to do, which is to navigate successfully between the government and the private sector. So, Roger, uh, what's, how'd you, how have you done this? What's been the, the theme of your career? And, and then ultimately, how do you navigate your way to the role that you have now as CEO of Bluemont? Great. Thanks, Lewis. I really appreciate uh, the invitation to come and speak to you today and, and our audience. And uh, I guess maybe if you were really generous, you would say my career is eclectic. Uh, <laughs> maybe to get right down to the truth, I can't hold a job for more than four years. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's been a great career. Uh, it's been one that uh, has many you know, turns and, and curves and surprises to it. But uh, it's been one that uh, has been very fulfilling. I guess if you, when you really boil things down, what has really motivated me uh, throughout my career is the ability to help people and to serve the U.S. government. Uh, I would say that I'm very proud of those accomplishments, both in and out of government. For most of the jobs I've had, I've had some ability to uh, to reach out and, and touch people and to uh, and to and to help the government uh, function better and. And uh, that's, that's really how I came to Bluemont. And uh, it was a surprise. I never really thought I would work for a, a, an NGO. Uh, uh, you know, as you can see by many of my other jobs, they've been pretty private sector oriented or more in the other parts of civilian government. Uh, but, um, you know, I work with a great staff uh, uh, of a thousand people um, across many countries in the world. And uh, they're very committed to what they they do, and I learn something every day from them. Great. Many of our listeners may not be familiar with Bluemont. Can you tell us more about your organization, its its mission, and um, and some of the countries in which you do work? Sure. When I first came to uh, the organization, they were called International Relief and Development. Uh, they wound up having some challenges with the government and quickly became a distress company. And so after uh, sort of 
after working with the government and, and uh, coming to a point where we had to make some critical decisions about the future of the company, we decided to rename the company Bluemont, and uh, we decided to go with a generic uh, um, mar- a freighting, um, you know, a, a, a marketing uh, freighted name uh, of Bluemont so that uh, we could tell our story in one word. And the story really is uh, Bluemont being uh, sort of a, a, a uh, amalgamation of uh, of um, blue blue hills, uh, blue mounds, which is a place in Wisconsin where we're now domiciled, and uh, the 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 uh, the the iconic view of mountains that most people in the world know. There's hardly any place in the world that doesn't have a mountain, right? And people across the world, no matter what language, what culture they come from, they think of mountains as a place that you aspire to, a place that when you're on top, you can see very clearly, and it it's, uh, it's gives you a sense of achievement. And so we, we, we sort of, you know, came up with this word, Bluemont, uh, and, uh, and are applying to development so that people understand that we're about transparency, we're about accountability, we're about vision, and we're trying to achieve uh, our goals in our industry, which is to help people and make the world a better place. Okay, great. That's a really uh, interesting story. When uh, we were talking uh, previously, you mentioned that uh, that you guys work in very, very tough places around the world. Can you say more about uh, the type of work that you guys do uh, outside of the U.S.? Sure, sure. We definitely, I would say, Probably to go to work every day is the most, the most challenging environments in the world. We really have um, three sectors that we work in. One is humanitarian assistance, and that's the that would I would say is uh, the area that is the toughest to work in, the most challenges every day. And what we mean by that, for those who aren't familiar, is we deliver services from our government clients, and it's either the U.S. government, the British government, the U.N., uh, the Australian government, whomever, uh, whomever hires us to do the job. Uh, we deliver food, uh, camp management, protection of uh, vulnerable citizens, uh, sometimes non-food items like winterization uh, type elements for uh, people to make it through the winters, uh, and, uh, and, and quite a number of other services in war zones. That's the primary uh, concern. War zones mainly, but sometimes crisis zones. But our ability to go in and help people in whatever situation they're in at the time, at least have the ability to survive. And if, if, if we're really lucky, they have the ability to get out of their circumstances and improve their lives. So humanitarian assistance is a very part in, important part of our mission. Uh, the second, uh, the second industry sector that we work in in our industry which is which is development is stabilization and so that really means uh, the countries that come out of a crisis situation and are really trying to stabilize themselves and that may be stabilizing themselves in governance in terms of you know maybe creating whatever governance structure they want democracy or whatever it is um, uh, it can be resource dependent stabilization so can we get clean water can we can we uh, plow our fields? Can we establish clinics and start a primary medical um, uh, infrastructure? And so we work in, in some sectors there, mainly in agriculture, in water, in infrastructure, and sometimes in basic healthcare. 
The last bucket is uh, is um, is resilience, and we all we're all very familiar with that, even in our own country, as we start to you know you know. Um, uh, meet the challenges of climate change. So in, in, in the developing world, it's a little bit more basic than that. It's can you build the kind of uh, community infrastructures, um, governance structures, um, infrastructure, I mean, uh, um, yeah, infrastructure and combination of, of different elements that, that give your communities or your countries the ability to withstand uh, crisis and stress, and then get through it, and and are better on the other side. So we spend a lot of time building large, you know, water systems in communities so that they can have clean water and sanitation. We spend time working with farmers not only to plow their fields, but to build value chains so that they can get their product to market and export, and then they can also, you know, have uh, have enough for their internal consumption. Uh, we uh, we build schools. We we work with uh, with communities to uh, to improve transportation. So it's really that 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 last you know that last level of uh, of of involvement uh, that c- communities and nations go through to really take them to the the point where they're now middle income. Okay. And so so we we work in we're lucky enough that we are working all three stages. Of a, of a country's development, and we can see progress, and we can also, unfortunately, sometimes see failure. Sure, absolutely. I mean, what are some of the some of the countries you mentioned war zones and places like that? What are some of the countries in in the world where you are currently operating? Well, we operate in really four regions: uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and and parts of Asia related to the, in that area. Um, sometimes it could be Nepal, those kinds of places. Um, we uh, we have a very large operation in the Middle East. Matter of fact, we're in every country in the Middle East except for Iran, for obvious reasons. Uh, and uh, we have a, a pretty robust uh, set of projects in West Africa, mainly in the Sahel area, so Niger, Burkina Faso, uh, Senegal, uh, and lastly in uh, northern South America, so the Colombia and in, in, in Central America. Got it. I mean, given your mission and the places in the world in which you operate, I mean, what are some of the, the primary challenges you guys have as an organization? Well, I think one is uh, anytime you're 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 managing a global presence, you know, global footprint of uh, of of. of various projects of different sizes and different complexities, it's it's just a challenge to operate every day, right? So number one is training. Uh, number one is, is planning, resourcing, and then training individuals to to accomplish the the tasks that were given by our our donors, our clients. Uh, number two is uh, as the as the project is you know evolves and, and it, you have to sustain that project. You, you know the in those parts of the world, one big challenge is not only safety, but it's uh, it's, um, it's it's compliance with the rules. And so, you know, stop, you know, first thing, make sure people understand the rules and will comply with it. And then, unfortunately, it's, uh, you know, try to prevent um, the things that happen even in the U.S., right, as people stealing or, or being dishonest or taking shortcuts. And I would say lastly is, uh, is achieving the goals. And sometimes, you know, we have great we have great donors, especially USAID, and, you know, we love working working for that client. Uh, but you know uh, they they are 
they have very high, you know, they have a very high expectations that we're going to meet those. Uh, we're going to be able to address those challenges and have good outcomes. And uh, you know, in in you know, in Afghanistan, when they're shooting at you or they're bombing or uh, they're they're finding some ways to infiltrate your project to uh, ensure that it's not uh, stable or successful. Uh, it makes meeting those goals challenging. Uh, sometimes you know you you've got uh, you've got communities that are so um, eager to change their lives that you've got that alignment and you can really just drive through change and it's great. Sometimes you you know you have communities that are less stable and you have somebody like the Taliban that uh, aren't really interested in success and um, that's a that's a tough challenge to deal with. So it, it's a it's a multiplicity of challenges, but uh, I would say that it's you know it really comes down to sort of planning and effectiveness. And what we've done is uh, we've really focus heavily on project management. So it's not only do can we train people to sort of, you know, uh, um, exercise, uh, you know, really the three pillars of project management, scope, um, uh, scope, um, uh, cost, and, uh, and schedule, but it's uh, the ability to do that in, in, in a varied situation. Uh, so, so project management is, is key to what we do. Uh, the second thing is that we have uh, really two core values that are important. It's integrity and stewardship. So we want people to be as honest and as forthright as possible uh, in their situations and to understand that that's a real important, critical part to our mission. And the second one is stewardship that when you are hired to work on a project, you want to be proud of that project and you want to take care of that project like you would take care of your family and to work with all the people on the project to ensure that we get um, the right kind of outcomes. And at the end of the day, how many jobs can you walk into where you're really helping somebody every day? Sure, absolutely. Given the uh, the work that you do and the places in which you work, uh, in, in some of these areas have been, obviously had, had uh, been unstable for quite some time. How do you, how do you measure success? You know, sometimes it's one life at a time. I mean, and that's that's not a bad measurement. Uh, it, it really depends on the project. I mean, we have uh, we have had projects where uh, we've delivered a million food boxes, you know, or food or or two boxes together, which we consider one parcel, and we've delivered those to to millions of people and lost very few boxes. And so not only can you say, hey, you know, great, you have a great, you have great, good integrity in your supply chain, and you got the boxes there, and the U.S. government, you know, got every dollar that uh, they paid for it. But also, what that tells you is that the people that you were delivering it to appreciated, took ownership of the project and ownership of the supply chain, and made sure that they had a continued supply of food. And so, you know, so so I would say measuring success there is not only did we accomplish the the dollar value of the goal, the physical value, but the spiritual value that those people felt safe and protected. And uh, so those are those those kind of uh, kind of ethereal type uh, goals are hard to measure, but we see it a lot in our projects. And and it, one thing that was really interesting when we changed our um, our name from Blue from IRD to Bluemont the number of communities that had a hard time making the change because they were so affiliated with IRD and what IRD had done in those communities 
that it was a really it was very difficult for people sort of to understand what we were doing. But when we sort of like we, we explained what the the iconic nature of making the change was and how it's really about taking things to the next level. And while we had IRD for you know 17 years and it was it it did what it did. Uh, the things that we want to do next um, really made it uh, sort of our core requirement to do things differently and to, to come up with a new name. So people have been embracing the name, and, and I actually think that Bluemont is is more uh, localized because everybody can make it what they want, and that's kind of a cool thing. Sure, absolutely. You had shared with me previously, Roger, that about 90% of your workforce are the citizens of the countries in which you guys uh, operate. How do you go about sourcing and developing and retaining local talent? Oh, that's a good question. Well, it's you know it, it's um, it, it's a it's a longer term um, it's a, it, it's really kind of a, a long term uh, uh, process. In, in countries where we're new, uh, we try to find um, you know. Um, like organizations, um, um, you know, we sometimes we're forced into, you know, because of the contract or the, the grant, we're forced to work in these communities. And so we try to find ways in which we can, you know, introduce ourselves to the communities and then meet people. And we try to hire, you know, sometimes we'll bring people in who have some familiarity with the country or the community. But um, uh, many times, it's it's a it can be a greenfield, and so you have to be careful. We'll we'll put out you know uh, postings for jobs in in various ways. It really depends on the the level of development, and then we'll we'll interview and 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 then bring people in. And like I said, we put people through pretty rigorous training, and then you know in, in that onboarding process, you can. Um, you can find out who um, who's good and who's not. We try to use organizations like Corn Ferry on occasion, especially for the the senior management jobs, because I think that that um, because you know uh, you know firms firms like 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 your firm can it, it, those are those are um, those give us a better guarantee that we're going to get a quality people, and so that that gives us just a you know a leg up sure. to start the project. But you know what for for. Americans are expats or, or third country nationals that we bring in our projects. Uh, the number one issue other than just vetting people is to train them to do what we want to do because we that gives us time for us to know them and them to know us and to understand what our expectations are and to follow it by the letter. And it doesn't always work out as like anything else, but I would say you know, at least 90% of the time it works out. But the local hires really make our organization. And the good thing is is that uh, it gives us sustaining power in those communities. So even after the project ends, we may do one years later on. Uh, we're just getting ready to start a new project in a, in a country, and uh, and the number uh, it's in Afghanistan, and the number of people who have come out to look for jobs that remember the projects that we did, and we did a lot of large projects back during the war, uh, was 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 really heartfelt by uh, by all of us that that people were that um, eager to work with us again, and people were leaving other organizations to come work for us. That's how much they really wanted to be there. So. Uh, so I feel I feel very uh, a lot of gratitude for uh, for what's been done in the past, and uh, we'll, we'll definitely be continuing that in the future. And so, local localization is a really mm-hmm. core part of our strategy. Sure, absolutely. Well, that's got to make you proud when people are seeking you out for for employment opportunities. Absolutely, in places like that. That's great. Absolutely. 
you know, given that uh, Bluemont is your first CEO role, curious to find out as you reflect on your career thus, thus far, what, what experiences along the way really helped you to prepare for this? And then similarly, what new skills have you been required to learn? Oh, good question. Uh, thank you. Uh, yeah, you know, it's, um, I would say that uh, when you get to the point of being a CEO is uh, there's, um, you start to draw on everything. And, uh, the, the, you know, the good and the bad, uh, things from more recent experiences, things, from, things from, from a long time ago. You know, when I first started my career after, after university, uh, I was going to the private sector. And uh, I went to a wedding uh, uh, in um, – with some people from Little Rock, and there was someone there who was uh, a political director for pre- uh, governor then Bill Clinton, and uh, she sort of pinned me in a corner and said, "Hey, um, you're, um, you know, I know that when you were, I know you were a science major, and that's the job you're going to go take now. But you know, the reality is, is that I, I, every time I came down there, you were working on some political campaign mm-hmm. in New Orleans, and so you should really think about that." And I said, "Well, I don't really know. I mean, I, I know." I know where I lived, but I don't know anything about Washington or anything. She goes, well, let me put you in touch with some people. So the next thing I know, she had me uh, being interviewed by uh, uh, Senator Joe Biden's staff. And so I went to work for, for Biden. So, And I stayed on the Hill for about six years. And that, that experience was, uh, was interesting. It gave me a, a, an interesting view of uh, the political world and the government. And I, uh, I spent every amount of time I could learning the government. So I didn't just learn um, the Hill and the legislative process. I really tried to learn all about all three branches of government. So it was a six years of, uh, of incubation mm-hmm. uh, and learning period. And then I went to, went to work uh, in the Clinton administration. And, and I, I had a chance. I was originally had the opportunity to go to the National Security Council. And I kind of felt at the time that that would just be like being another staffer again. Mm-hmm. And so I asked to go to, into operations. And I went to the State Department. And I went to work for um, a renowned and genteel and um, – and and uh, and now a really good friend uh, by the name of George Moose, who's uh, you know a career ambassador uh, uh, of the highest, and uh, a, 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 you know like I said a great person. And he um, he showed me the ropes, and I was uh, you know I was involved in and uh, uh, deeply involved in Somalia, Rwanda. Um, uh, the wars in Angola. Um, we were still negotiating with the Russians, uh, negotiations with the Europeans, um, helping Nelson Mandela become president. And, uh, you know, those years were, I mean, th- th- those were events that people still talk about, and we were deeply involved in that. So that really launched me into uh, uh, my international career, and it gave me a lot of experience. Lastly, I would say being Secretary of Revenue in the state of Wisconsin, it brought me back to what it's like to be outside of the Beltway mm-hmm. and working where the rubber hits the road with people. And so if you're in a situation where the collectors took someone's house, mm-hmm. you walked outside, you'd met those people, right? It wasn't like you're not back here in a distant capital. And so that those four years gave me a good experience what it was like to be up close and personal with the American people. And I loved it. I tried traveled across the state. I went to almost com- every community there, and it was a fantastic experience. And to come back here to work for LMI and now Blue Mountain, the government contracting community, is really a dream come true. Yeah, that's great. That's a 
wonderful story and, and very interesting themes, how things have really connected the dots for you. I know you've uh, spent a, a significant portion of your career uh, working in and being involved in issues in Africa. And you know, most Americans, and myself included, don't know a whole lot about uh, you know, what's, what's, what's happening there. I mean, you know, most of, unfortunately, the information we get tends to be problematic. And so I'm just interested in, in, in hearing from you, what are some of the, the more positive and noteworthy developments that, that you've seen and have been a part of uh, helping to happen over the last five to 10 years? Well, I think it, um, you know, I think first was, you know, we, we, we needed to break um, the, um, the, the, uh, the culture of dependency between the, the North and the South. And I think that that we had to go through a lot of pain and suffering and, and death sometime uh, to do that. But I think finally, by the time the 90s were over and into 2000s, that the real obvious dependency between uh, the um, uh, Europe and the U.S. And, and Africa were broken, and so they were set free. And in some cases, that didn't work out too well, like the DR, like the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Uh, in some places, it worked out well. And so now we're into the phase of uh, of can these countries um, uh, develop their governments, run the governments, uh, you know, eventually put down corruption, and uh, be able to stabilize themselves both financially and uh, uh, and economically and uh, militarily. And uh, it's it's been great. You know, I had not only the experience of sort of being in that process and helping, you know, make that transition, but also myself and a couple other people wrote something called the African, De uh, African Growth and Opportunity Act, which is basically the Free Trade Act for Africa. And that, uh, that led to opportunity. Not everybody took advantage of it, but it led opportunity for people to, to for, for African countries to do, you know, develop their export market to the largest market in the world, the U.S., and uh, some people did take advantage of that. And so I think now it's really a challenge of two things. One, resource management. They need to understand how better to manage their resources and not sell themselves cheap and to live for the long term and not the short term. So, you know, so there still needs to be some changes in governance to make that happen. And then the second part is is human capital management. I mean, they've got to, like, learn that they've got the fastest growing uh, youth population in the world, and they've got to manage that so it doesn't get out of control. And then they've got to figure out a way in which they can provide better health care for their citizens, uh, education, and opportunity. And if they do that, Africa is going to be a real player in the world. I don't, I, I think some of us who, I was just had lunch with a friend of mine who's a longtime Africanist, and and we were both, you know, first sort of saying, "Geez, you know, maybe they really Africa hasn't come as far as they should." And you know, the last thirty years we we're working on it, but when you really look back on it, yeah, they've come a long ways. And I, so I think that the the um, I, I think that the, the the future looks good. I, I think unfortunately Americans only learn, you know, there's no place called Wakanda mm -hmm. <laughs> in Africa, sure. uh, but there are a lot of great people in Africa. Sure. And um, uh, I, I just recently did my genealogy mm -hmm. and got all the way back. And uh, for the most part, I can't, I don't have the Kunta Kinte moment, okay. uh, but I certainly have a, a, a better understanding of what happened uh, throughout the slavery years and, 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 even, and potentially even before. And that that's 
Africa is more than that for us. Mm-hmm. It's not only about the past, but it's about the future. And I don't think as, as many African Americans or, or even Americans have understood that I think Africa has a lot to offer for the U.S. in the future. And so I hope that that's something that pe- people like me and you can uh, can help educate people on. Certainly. Absolutely. One last question, Roger. You've had, a, like I said, a really incredible career. I mean, what a couple of life lessons can you share with younger folks who aspire to have as rich and diverse a career in life as you've had? Uh, well, you know, I... I I, uh, I think you mentioned earlier, I, I've, I've taught for 10 years. I just finished uh, a, a string of, uh, of, um, of teaching at the university, both in the political science department, but more in the business school. And so what I, one of the things, that, and we always get on this topic of this, you know, what, what, what are the life lessons? And I tell them, look, number one is ethics. That is the number one thing. You can always remake money. You can always get a new job, but once you lose your ethical base, once you lose your integrity, you can never get that back. Mm. And uh, that's always helped me the most, that people know that not only am I honest, but I'm a hard worker. And if they hire me, there's a pretty good chance that I'll do the job well. Um, And uh, so I think an ethical basis is the number one thing. Number two is to work hard. And number three is become a life learner. If you don't become a life learner and if you get stagnant in what you do and in your knowledge, you're going to get left behind. And so uh, it's always about being competitive. It's always about competing. And then I would say lastly, I said that one, there's, there is one other thing. Build a network that you can depend upon. Absolutely. Well, Roger, thank you so much for, for being my guest on my show, Government Contracting Today. It's been a pleasure to, uh, to speak with you, and I'm sure that our listeners will uh, thoroughly enjoy this conversation. So thank you again. Thanks, Lewis. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to The Workforce Show. This interview and others can be found at WERA.FM or at CareerCentralOnline.com. Thank you for listening. Until the next time.